Hey everybody, welcome to Dear Asian Americans. This is your host, Jerry Wan. Before we get started with today's episode, wanted to share a little message that we have as we share here at Dear Asian Americans that we support the Department of Health and Human Services COVID-19 education campaign. We can do this. Efforts to increase education and awareness about the COVID-19 vaccines. Whether it's due to a language barrier or lack of access to healthcare, Many Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders face unique challenges to getting accurate vaccine information. We hope that amplifying these resources, especially in other languages, will help reach and protect our most vulnerable communities. For more information, just head over to vaccines.gov. That is vaccines.gov. Really excited to share this conversation today with Christina Monansella, who is an epidemiologist, and we'll learn about her uh, studying neuroscience uh, as a Filipina-American woman, and now uh, the work that she's doing in trying to bridge the gap of healthcare access. We're really excited, as I'm sure you're away by now, to announce our partnership with McDonald's as a part of the We Are APA campaign. And so head over to our Instagram page, at the Asian Americans. Yesterday, we shared the story of Sunmi, who is a Korean-American cartoonist. Tomorrow, get ready for our second guest. We're going to be sharing seven stories. And at the end of the month, we're in for a treat. We're going to be interviewing the two folks who did the taking of the photographs and capturing of the stories, uh, Eric and Emmanuel here on the show during the last week of May. So really grateful that you're here. Uh, If you're joining us new, thank you so much for joining us and finding us. My name is Jerry, and this is going to be episode 113. And so got a lot of catching up to do. If you want to go back and listen to some amazing stories, we've been at this for about a year and three months now. If you want to support us here on the show, you can do that in a number of different ways. One, of course, uh, share this out with a friend or two. If you want to support us financially, you can do that in two ways. You can head over to our merch shop, which is bit.ly slash DAA shop. And you can buy all sorts of fun Dear Asian Americans branded logos or just Asian American apparel. Or you can go simply to buyjerryacoffee.com if you want to support the work that we are doing here, that I am doing here uh, to amplify Asian American stories. Thank you so much for joining us on this ride as we share and celebrate Asian American stories, particularly APAM of 2021. So thanks again so much for tuning in. Without further ado, here now is my conversation with Christina. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. Happy APAM. Happy Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month here in the United States. It is also Mental Health Awareness Month. I don't know if it was intentional that we put those two things together because those are two things that I resonate with, but also we as a community are not so good at talking about our mental health, but today we are going to be talking about our physical health and we are going to be talking to uh, Christina Maransala, who is a uh, a scientist, a epidemiologist, and a community advocate uh, who is working very hard to make sure that there is equity in healthcare access. Uh, for so many people, but particularly members of our Asian American community. So uh, welcome, Christina, to the Asian Americans. Hi, Jerry. Thank you so much for the warm welcome. I'm excited to share uh, this conversation with you today, um, partially because uh, for listeners who, who have followed us all along, we did have uh, guest hosts for the month of months of March and April, and um I am hosting a a number of shows here back in May as we talk about really important issues of vaccines uh, of our Heritage Month and really highlighting some of the stories that I think um, 
we often don't hear in mainstream media. Uh, we obviously, if you don't know, uh, we're only about 6% of Americans uh, across the board, but we uh, overrepresent or over-index, however you want to, uh, we represent well in the fields of healthcare. Um, but we also are not as a minority myth e as you would like to believe, because there are still so many pockets and ethnicities of our very diverse Asian American diaspora that are undereducated, under resourced, and don't have the same access to the level of healthcare that we'd love for everybody to have. And so we're going to start off by learning a little bit more about Christina's background, how she came here, why she fell in love with what she is doing today. So uh, start us off with uh, how the Madansala family became Filipino American. <laughs> So my parents immigrated to the United States from the Philippines, and they immigrated to Union City. Um, and then I have two older siblings. They were born before me, obviously. And <laughs> then we moved to um, Texas and then came back to um, California. What were some of your early influences in terms of what did you want to be? What did your parents, you know, uh, aspire you to be? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think obviously we often talk about the stereotypes of, you know, healthcare yeah. from, a, from a, you know, a provider perspective, but mm -hmm. you've chosen the research area and sort of a different sort <laughs> of, how, how, when did that become real clear for you? So I, I'm not sure if I would call my background unique, um, but I am the youngest out of three of my siblings. And um, my parents—I don't want to say they didn't pay attention to me, but they didn't exactly pressure me to excel in school at all. Um, which is surprising because I'm the first person to go to college in my family, and I'm also the first person to go to graduate school. Um, so they, contrary to you know the st Asian stereotype, they never pressured me to do anything. Um, so I actually just fell in love with the science whenever I was really little. Um, I really liked mixing things together and I would just gather things from the backyard, just random things and make my own little potions. And I, I just love that. Like that, it was just really something that caught on to me. Um, so yeah, my parents never once told me to, you know, do my homework. Not even once. Um, like in fact, my, my dad did leave while I was a young teenager. Um, I was 14, so I grew up primarily, it feels like, with, um, a single mother. Um, so that, that was quite difficult, but I found a lot of solstice in science and technology, and it was something that, you know, came as a comfort to me because I, I, I excelled so much, um, academically and you know that I transitioned um, to undergrad at UC San Diego and I studied neuroscience and from there you know because I grew up not having much access to healthcare, I realized it wasn't just me um, and I realized you know that wasn't necessarily okay for well definitely not okay for other people to grow up without healthcare. Um, so I started volunteering within local areas, and then I expanded and joined other organizations and started working um, in Sub-Saharan Africa and Central America, and now like nationally, so on, on all levels. And I think in terms of public health, 
Um, it's something that I'm really passionate about. And as far as research goes, I'm more into like cancer research. And um, right now I'm completing my degree in epidemiology, which is like the spread of diseases. So yeah, I mean, I think as far as like a whole holistic overview, like my ultimate goal is really to reduce healthcare disparities. Um, and that's at the really tiny level and overall public health level. <laughs> that is awesome. I, I do want to go back and start, you know, get, I'm very curious because mm-hmm. I think um, neuroscience and yeah. <laughs> physiology and, and sort of even amongst the sciences, the more difficult or more expert level sort of level of science fields, if you will, as, as neuroscience mm-hmm. is, um, you know, we often used to joke as a, as a kid, we, you know, what are you, you know, um, a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist, you know, like we, we have those, those sort of uh, stereotypes yeah. or just sort of the notion that these are very highly uh, technical fields. What made you want to go into that and, and share with us a little bit about you being a Philippine American woman studying in those fields, because in, even in those fields, did you see very many people like you? What sort of mentors or sort of coaching, you know, that, did you have? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you know, growing up, there was no one who looked anything like me. I think, I think it's just, okay, so I'm a woman, first of all, and within STEM fields, there aren't that many women. Um, so that alone is a challenge. But then I'm also Asian. So there weren't two, like contrary to popular belief, um, in higher academia and, you know, within scholarships. And once you go, you know, in TAs and try to get mentors, there aren't actually too many Asians. Um, you know, it's a silent minority. And on top of that, you know, Filipinos are kind of the, I hate to say it, but like the more... They're seen as a little bit less than in terms of the different Asian ethnicities. I hate saying that, and I I don't think it's true personally. Um, but I have received comments within the Asian community about Filipinas being more of the, you know, tropical Asians. So that that and alone is really difficult. But I mean, I think. You know, I, in my own right, try to make myself bigger and more obvious rather than shrinking down. And that is is something that I'm not really sure where it came from because, you know, in within my family, um, like I said, I primarily grew up with a single mom. It did seem like a lot of odds were against me and like people were after me. But, you know, I think Part of the reason why I was drawn to science and technology, especially neuroscience, um, was because I excelled in it and I was encouraged in it. And that as a result, like made me, I know you're laughing right now, but, but it's true. Like that, it, I found a lot of solstice in science and technology. Like I, I had, a, I hated going home. I was so uncomfortable at home that I just really buried my head and was so encouraged by my mentors. And, you know, it's not proper to say, but they didn't see me for, you know, my characteristics. 
of being a woman, of being an Asian woman, of being a Filipino woman. I think there's so much what you just shared and, and um I, I am sorry that you feel that way as far as even how other uh Asians and Asian Americans treat and stereotype and generalize against others. Um I don't speak for anybody else except me. I also know that uh at many times it's unfortunate people who look a lot like me. It is by and large, um you know, straight Chinese Korean dudes who dominate not only the conversations, but the spaces in which we are supposed to represent all of Asian America. Um, and so I hope that we can get to a point where those uh, terrible and, and really awful and inhumane stereotypes and judgments are, are no longer. I, I also believe that there's a lot of um, really unnecessary and, and dangerous language that we've picked up even amongst ourselves. That is, um, I guess to put it innocently self-deprecative in nature, but it's also really then then, you know, kids hear that and then they associate, you know, um, but by, by itself, they're not bad terms, but when you think about what it actually connotes and then what they're trying to say, I'm not going to say any of them here on the mm -hmm. show. Cause I think most people know what I'm talking about. Right. But, yeah. That, um, that's why I was hesitant. Whenever no, I was no, no, I, and, and I saw the hesitancy earlier. and I know what, yeah, I think if most people um, know what words we're talking about. So let's, let's make a commitment altogether. Um, continued commitment to um, not just towards our, our Southeast Asian friends, but just across the board. Um, we cannot expect other people, allies or otherwise to join in us in our fight. If we are, uh, taking down each other and even in jest um, doing anything other than uh, uplifting and thinking about ways to to bring us together. So I, I really appreciate that. I think, you know, I, I'll be honest, and um, this is going to be uh, episode 111 or 12, and <laughs> I, I've really tried hard to make our guest list as diverse as Asia is. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because yeah. my my bias because of my personal friendships and the communities that I uh, mostly grew up in are largely Korean and largely East Asian. Mm -hmm. um, there we represent 30, 40 countries, do we not? And when we talk about you know uh, the smaller countries in Southeast Asia, many of whom are here not by choice but because of foreign policy and resettlement plans and um, it, it is very, very nuanced and complex. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that's a very good way, I think, for us to, you know, segue into sort of where I wanted to talk to you about, which is, you know, when we talk about um, healthcare equity, access, but also information, truthful mm -hmm. information. Um, again, I think people just think because of the modern minority myth that, hey, and then Filipinos and perhaps, you know, I don't even want to call it a good stereotype, but, you know, um, a large percentage of nurses in America are Filipinos. And that is an amazing thing. And mm -hmm. when you talk about doctors, same thing. A lot of Southeast South and East Asian doctors. Um, and so I, I think sometimes that leads people to believe that uh, we are all educated, that we all know what we're talking about. That everybody has a doctor or a nurse in the family. And that's not true. And where, where that gets dangerous is that when it comes to both public and private focus on both financial investment and resource investment into educating our communities about uh, what was what is very topical right now, of course, is a COVID-19 vaccine. But even before that, in terms of 
all the resources and precautions, they were not invested in and they were not available. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you, you now focus your work and both your uh, volunteer and in leadership time outside of your day job yeah. into that effort. And so um, where was that spark for you? Was there a particular personal experience or through research? How did you discover your passion for healthcare, healthcare equity for Asian Americans? Well, I think just growing up, um, hearing comments here and there from friends and family, and I myself did not necessarily have access to healthcare. And I think there were certain stereotypes um, or commonalities thinking like, well, you know, I'd rather not pay for healthcare and wait until something happens. And if something happens, I'd rather deal with it. Um, one specific thing that I'm focusing on right now is the intersection between mental health and physical health. Um, I just contributed to a recent study about post-traumatic stress disorder and eating disorders. And those two, you know, are the intersection of physical and mental health. So I think, you know, just as I grew up, from high school to college to graduate school to working, I identified within myself and within my own community and recognized, like, it's not just me. Like, I'm not the only one who fought these things, who saw these gaps, and it's something that's affecting a community at whole. And, you know, when my parents immigrated um, to the United States from the Philippines, they they face discrimination. Um, and it's not as silent as, say, the di- discrimination right now, but they did. And that applies to all aspects, including access to healthcare. And right now, I do think that there are some underlying disparities um, within the healthcare field. And, you know, that's something that I'm working on right now with the Asian American National Committee for working with other organizations like the U.S. Aid um, to make and collaborate with them, their, their sources, and translate them to different languages and reach out to different populations within the Asian American community. So it, so I, I do think it goes both ways. It's like, well, within the Asian American community, there is kind of the culture to like, you know, we're here, we're immigrants, we're just going to work hard and be successful. But then at the same time, it's like, well, it is important to destigmatize the nature to ask for help. I think there's so much truth in what you're saying, because when we often talk about the Asian American identity, it is an extra identity that so many of us have actively decided to adopt. Um, Mm -hmm. It is really a a term born out of political necessity and political activism, because Asia um, maybe a shock to some folks is not a country, is not a religion, is not a race, <laughs> is not, or it's a race, but it's not a food or a language, right? Um, I can't say your name in Asian. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Asian food over encompasses all the different culture of food, but there is actually no yeah. cuisine called Asian. And and so it's an additional identity. And I think when we talk, when we think about our, our parents' generation and even older, they don't identify as that, right? That is not their primary identity. And, and I would argue that for, for so many older Asian Americans, that they don't even identify with insert your country American either, right? I think, for example, my parents, I, I wonder if their identity is 
Korean American or Korean happen to be living in America because I may or may not go back, right? And and that also informs one a lot of political political and uh, other ideologies that help them inform their you know voting and other types of decisions here in this country. But the only reason I think you know part of the I think the big impact of that identity difference is how they view themselves and what audacity they have to demand certain things or expect certain things as American citizens, because many of them are naturalized American citizens now. And even without that, you should have a right to have equal access to things like healthcare and and correct information. And and so I don't know how we're going to fix that problem, to be honest with you, because, you know, to get people to understand that they have equal right. And I think, unfortunately, the events of the past year, which are still continuing with the rise in hate crimes and the discrimination and blatant racism that we see, I think a part of that really sadly is making many Asian Americans, particularly in the older demographic, retreat back into, I am not welcome here. I am looking for ways to shrink myself, to not be seen, not to make any noise. Um, I also know that many people have decided to move back to Asia or to other parts because they don't feel safe here. And there's a lot of things that we can talk about that, but the, the part that I think is really fascinating is how do we get the most vulnerable population from a healthcare perspective with language and also uh, socioeconomic challenges who also happen to most feel silenced and also not encouraged to demand things? How do we bridge that gap? And what are some things that science and research tells us that we need to to you know, uh, bridge that gap from an access and information perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think you brought up so many, so many important points. And as far as bridging the gap, like I've always thought it starts at leadership, then it trickles down. And I do think not to get political, but with new leadership, it will trickle down and, you know, people won't call it the Chinese virus or it'll be frowned upon in that regard. And I just, I cringe so much saying it, but it is something that has been said several times. And as far as destigmatizing, you know, the risk of getting the vaccine, I I do think um, there are multiple components to it. I think because as Asian Americans, um, I I know, I, I just took a really deep breath, but it's, it's true, like we have been scapegoated for the virus. And, you know, I live in the East Bay area and supposedly we're a progressive area, but even here I face discrimination. So it's not something that is just going to go away overnight by any means. Um, but I do think that, you know, sending the message from leadership, having biotech companies and having healthcare companies from above. Um, you know, having specific messages to Asian American communities in, you know, a language that is translated to them with images that show people from their demographic. I think those tiny little changes really will add up to an overall change in our community feeling comfortable because, um, you know, one component is about trust. And right now, I do think the Asian American community as a whole 
um, because we faced so much scapegoating and so much backlash for the actual virus that even, you know, going outside, going to work and reaching out for help has been difficult. Um, and especially considering the virus, because we have been identified as the culprit, we don't necessarily want to get treatment for it. And I think that is just like the elephant in the room, <laughs> from my perspective, at least. So like what what I'm doing right now is I'm really attempting to destigmatize um, any sort of difficulties that the Asian American community may face getting the vaccine. Like these overarching healthcare providers are willing and open and more than happy to provide healthcare to these populations. Um, so just really bridging that gap and making it known from leadership um, that, yeah, Asian Americans are welcome. Asian Americans are not the cause and we stand with them. And I think, you know, it, it starts with all types of companies. And like I said, I, I work for a biotech company and the CEO of the company, she sent out an announcement saying like, with the Asian, Asian American community and working COVID therapeutics and just that statement I think alone maybe doesn't warrant a response but it does change the sentiment it's it's so complicated and it is so <laughs> deep and I think mm -hmm. what what makes it really more difficult is the nuanced diversity of all the people who check the Asian box on a census form. Mm -hmm. How we came here, under what circumstances, when, how long we've been here, all these things contribute to it. Um, I think many of us, I think more than perhaps the, uh, the national average, believe in science, have taken proper precautions, uh, particularly during the last year, when it came to uh, masking, social distancing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, the way that uh, countries in Asia have dealt with it. And I think, you know, a lot of our communities sort of uh, took a nod from, okay, what's what they're doing is working. So if we follow and, then, you know, things like that, of course, I think, um, again, uh, perhaps not a, not a complete generalization, but most of, many of our cultures are, are more collectivist than, Western individualistic ideals. And so I think this notion of a little bit of sacrifice, a little bit of personal freedoms being temporarily paused for the greater good was good. However, we were still seeing a lot of rampant misinformation. Um, I remember um, when, when COVID was first starting, um, you know, we would get uh, interesting remedies from both grandparents or both sides of, of my wife's and I, my family's or and other things that you would see on Facebook or in, in, in the Korean American community, the cacao talk chat rooms and just these unverified things that um, also if they exist in a chat platform, you can't moderate it, right? Because you don't know who's posting it. And, and, and now we're, we're obviously experiencing a very confusing sort of chapter of why are you questioning something that is going to give you a better chance of survival, at least than getting the virus in, not trusting the vaccine and things like that. So what what is, you know, from, from where you sit, obviously both from uh, your, your job working in biotech, but also, you know, in the communities and 
um, having a network of classmates and professors and all these people that you, you know, have ample resources for information. Um, are we at a good place now overall as a community? Where where do we need to get to to make sure that we have, you know, I, I know numbers and, and statistics can can really excite people or, or bore people, but you know, we need to get to a point where one, we need to get to all the vulnerable people that may have language or, you know, uh, access disparity. But from a vaccine perspective, how do we, what, what is your perspective on current state and how do we get to the future state? You know, statistics and epidemiology in the most high level sense, it's based upon a sample size. And right now, our sample size is about half of the people who do get vaccinated. And out of that half of people who do get vaccinated, we only have maybe about 6% of accurate results. So it it is very difficult to say. And that's a lot of jargon and percentages. Um, but the ultimate take-home message is that we don't have enough data, but the data that we do have and general public opinion suggests that Asian Americans are wary of the vaccine. They don't think it's safe. And they generally do not have plans to move forward with the vaccine. Um, and that I do think is the state that we are in now. Um, and I think a lot of it is, I see your face, but I think a lot of it is skewed by public perception. Um, I think, you know, with the percent, um, efficacies of each vaccine, it, to me, at least as a scientist, it's quite apparent that it is effective and there is very low risk. Um, but in terms of awareness of the actual side effects, I think as far as news coverage goes and social media goes and just, you know, people talking, it is kind of misconstrued that there is a higher risk of getting the vaccination. Um, so, I mean, as as a potential, well, as an actual solution that I'm trying right now to do, and it's not something that will happen overnight, um, but it's to mitigate those, you know, misconceptions and to also have these conversations around mental health. Because I think those two really do intersect. Um, and, you know, right now I'm in the office of telemedicine and telehealth. So it's a cross section of because, you know, people are getting vaccinated, but we still are in a pandemic and we still have to account for herd immunity that a lot of it is online right now. Um, and what I'm trying to do is, you know, appeal to the mental health sense, as in, you know, there are some stigmas and it's okay to go out for help. It's okay to see the doctor. And like, there aren't going to be people who think like, oh, this is your fault. Because it, I think scapegoating is a really important topic to pick up. Um, so at, like right now, statistically, not good. <laughs> But like that, that's the ultimate takeaway that I have right now. But I do think that there is a lot of room for growth. Um, 
And I think, you know, if it is acknowledged from someone, you know, in a higher position, position of authority, and also within communities, that it's the new norm and the thing to do, then I think that will help get, you know, vaccination statistics a lot higher. So the average person that listens to our show is not the average mm-hmm. person that we were just talking about. Right. Or yeah. our parents, grandparents, <laughs> yeah. uncles, aunts, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe a generation apart, but also uh, in, in a different uh, generation of, of how people consume mm-hmm. content and, and engage. And so in, in this effort that we all want to, um, you know, as, as I shared before, I have healthcare professionals in my family. We believe in science. We mm-hmm. do not, we, we had never for one second um, hesitated or doubted not only the efficacy of the vaccine, but the fact that we would get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as and our, the adults in our household got it as soon as we are eligible and able to. Um, how, so, you know, it, it is a little bit harder for me to uh, have this perspective. And so I, I would love to get your thoughts, you know, Christina, because how do you, you know, at some point, we have to either decide that it is a genuine lack of information, and so therefore sharing more information will help them understand the need and the safety concerns of the vaccine mm-hmm. to go get it. That's one scenario. The two scenarios that they are on the flip side of the equation and saying, I don't believe in it. I am not going to go get it. Mm-hmm. For those of us who believe that it is much, much uh, better percentages and just safer to get the vaccine because we also care for our family and friends that we are also thinking about their health. Um, what, what, yeah. what are, what, what are some things that we can do if you're listening to this podcast or if you um, have members of your family or friends, older folks, I guess age is independent here. Um, mm-hmm. How do we talk to them and what are some things that doesn't end in um, <laughs> I, that, that doesn't end in, uh, somebody hanging up on somebody else or the, yeah. the, what, what's very dangerous right now is let's agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. That's been sort of the civil way that we've decided to maintain friendships while we may not see eye to eye. But yeah, this may not be one of these situations where we want to end with cool, you know, <laughs> uh, because it's, yeah. So it's herd how, immunity. How I mean, that, that is the ultimate goal. And especially protecting our older populations is really important. And, you know, like you said, misinformation is a really big component of that. But I also think that it's a little bit more complicated because there is misinformation. And then there's also, um, you know, maybe a different perspective, a different approach to displaying the information. Because, um, you know, my mom, for instance, like she, I love her so much. She's so sweet and she's, she's my mom, but she doesn't absorb the same type of information that I have um, or that I do. So, I mean, I think as an approach, it's really important to make the access a lot more available um, and as far as right now, like one of the projects that I'm working on are, um, is just setting up these vaccination centers and making them more obvious within the community 
to make it that simple and that easy. Um, and I know that's not sexy. That's not <laughs> like, you know, this huge idea, but it, it, it truly is a really big component of why people don't seek care. It's not necessarily because they think like, oh, I'm, you know, going to die from it, from the Johnson and Johnson. I think there's, um, you know, a lot of misinformation about the vaccination potential consequences. But that's another topic. And it, but it is tangential. Um, but I, I really do think that access, having, you know, a, a vaccination center centralized close to Asian American communities. Like I, I live in the Bay Area and there's San Francisco Chinatown, Oakland Chinatown. And right now, one of the projects I'm working on is making a center available within those communities. And I think having it, you know, those centers culturally relevant and having examples of people within that community who have gotten vaccinated and say, like, okay, it's okay to get vaccinated. Um, and it's, I know, it, it, it's not sexy at all. It's a very, I think, like, common sense approach, but it, it, it does work. And like this, the coronavirus, it is a virus and it is a pandemic, but there have also been a lot of viruses that maybe have not affected the entire world, but within like Sub-Saharan Africa, within Central America. And a lot of the time, Occam's Razor, it's, it is the simplest choice, like having access within those communities, having people that are, you know, highly regarded. Like, I don't know, um, you know, news, people in the news or people who are well-known within the community or well-respected or, you know, your favorite grocer has, like, brochures or something like that. It It, it really is simple. And, you know, I, I did spend some time um, in Tanzania working on vaccinations with um, children. So not the coronavirus, of course, but these are like very, very simple vaccinations. And of course, there, there are stigmas about the potential consequences, but a lot of it really underlying is access. And once the access is apparent and very obvious, and it is proven that members within their community, within their demographic, are going through the vaccination process. I think that, well, it's not sexy, like you said, that that really is the most ideal solution that we ever come up with. So let's talk about the future. Um, <laughs> COVID obviously is, is not past us. Um, I think we can all agree that we need a better plan for the future that we need to be more proactive in our approach at times. Cause I believe a lot of pretty much everything, the way that we've dealt with COVID in, in our country has been very reactive um, mm-hmm. and, and trying to catch up. And, um, and we also know uh, the Pew research center uh, just uh, released a very, very thorough report on sort of the changing demographics of Asian America and in the coming decades, we're going to grow in population, um, not only just from those of us who are here, but they predict that immigration will continue to flow into uh, America, which means that the same challenges that we have now in terms of uh, access, 
um, socioeconomic differences and language particularly isn't a problem that we're just going to age out of, which is a common belief that if immigrant, you know, we all didn't move here one day and then our children just grew up here, right? There's still influx of, of new immigrants. And so um, knowing how difficult it is or it has been with COVID in terms of getting the word out there, right? And so, for example, if you go to the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, we can do this website. There are resources in about four or five Asian languages. Is that sufficient? Is that enough? How, what, what qualifies the investment? What justifies the investment in getting translators and, and other resources to get the language to everybody, right? And sort of in the same breath as herd immunity, what is quote unquote large enough or good enough to get to all the people, right? Because that's the discussion that I think isn't something that we can, we can settle or even just, you know, have a comprehensive talk about today, but looking forward as, as a public health professional, um, and then by the way, congratulations on your upcoming graduation, uh, from <laughs> USC, Thank which is one, one of, one of my two schools and, and a place Yay, that I fight um, on. Have, have a very, uh, love sometimes uh challenging relationship with however uh quick pause to <laughs> congratulate you on that um what what, what is no, knowing what we know, soon, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, knowing what we know like what what do we do how do we prepare as, as people who witness this and we've seen you know and even now as we sit here we're recording this right at the end of april um you know india went really good and then holy crap right like what is you know, so like, what can we do as as a community, as as people who, again, I think if you're listening to this, we assume um, you, you agree with many of the things that we've said. You have more privilege than the average person if you have the ability to, you know, listen and to engage with us. Like, what can we do as a community with our families, with our communities, with our peers, looking forward, so that uh, what maybe not in next one year, but maybe in a hundred years you know, the inevitability of another, you know, large scale virus um, mm -hmm. or another sort of um, wide affecting pandemic where information and access and connectedness is going to still be a concern. Um, are, are there some things that we can do as a community now to uh, pr prepare or be more proactive about that? Yeah, I mean, as a community, I really hone this in to a lot of my friends who ask me actually and it's it's really like how much are you actually willing to commit reasonably and like be honest with yourself because we're all so busy and it's not like okay i'm gonna donate like 500 dollars this one month it's, it's not like that it's it's an ongoing commitment and i think that's maybe a lack of judgment sometimes that we have like oh, okay we could donate some money we could do something just one time but i i strongly and wholeheartedly believe it's a commitment and and at the intersection of racial injustices and healthcare injustices it's a long-term commitment that it's not just something that we can just do on one or two or three or four or five instances i think as a start, um, I if our demographic, of course, is we are already educated, I think just telling yourself, maybe I'm not that educated, <laughs> and try to think from someone else's perspective, because I, you know, I'm not going to call out any names or anything, but 
you know, I think that, yes, perhaps a lot of us are educated, but it's important to know that, you know, where are my gaps in knowledge? What type of unconscious biases do I have? And how can I contribute to the overall public opinion? Because I think by and large, the onus has fallen on larger companies. And on my part, what I'm doing in my profession, working in biotech, and then also um, within the Asian American National Committee, developing relationships with governmental professionals, it starts with leadership, but then leadership feeds on general public. And right now, because we are in an age where social media matters, where public opinion really matters, is just, you know, taking a consistent stand. I, like I said, like, I'm not very sexy. Like, this isn't sexy. Like, just being consistent in what you believe in and continuing that and taking a stand for it. Whether it's in your workplace, whether it's, um, you know, in friendly gatherings or going to a grocery store, because it's something that makes people uncomfortable and myself even, and I work in this profession, but it is the, it is at the intersection of racial stigmas and healthcare disparities. And I think that is something that once people want to acknowledge that fact and then hopefully become committed to the knowledge gaps and not necessarily say like, well, I'm educated and, you know, these are the things I as an educated person can do. It's more just like, what can I do as a person in this community? I think the challenging thing is, again, just the why the, the, the wide array of diversity that exists are also in in thought, right? The I, I think those of us who believe in in hard sciences, um, we believe it to be fact, um, and, and that is something that many of us were raised to born with as sort of our ingoing hypothesis, if you will, about the way that you view life. There are other folks who may not have had the same access to education opportunities and perspectives. You know, we do have to not come from it, it is important that those folks don't come from a condescension tone or a i'm better than you i'm smarter than you you don't know anything because i do mm -hmm. think that's that what i was getting at but i didn't want to <laughs> no, no no but because it's that attitude <laughs> right because mm -hmm. correct because uh telling somebody that they don't get it isn't the best way for them to get it right because sometimes that forces that person to go deeper into their belief because it is people's, you know, belief systems, their, you know, egos and self-esteems that I think, you know, again, this is also touches on mental health and how we need to be very thoughtful and mindful in um, how we share or how we get information that we know is going to be at odds. And so, you know, I, I think it's really, really, you know, great. I think it's really wonderful that you're on this path and working with people in our community, both in your professional and your leadership world, so that we can get to a point where this isn't as big of a challenge, right? Because COVID mm -hmm. itself is probably the greatest challenge that we'll face as humanity in our lifetimes. I certainly um, so. <laughs> Right. You know, I mean, racism is another, um, all these things that are sort of outside of our control 
um, what we can control, I think, to the extent that we have conversations like this and, and continue to bring these issues to the top of the surface is what do we believe in? What do we not believe in? And how do we make sure that it is disseminated into as many people? Um, and so, you know, um, we definitely, and I'll say this, you know, for, for folks who've listened to our, our shows for a while, we um, do not uh, take a hard political stance on things, but I draw my line as, as the show's creator and producer at Humanity. And if we can believe in things that is good for saving lives and is good for treating people with dignity. Um, and so for me, access to healthcare, saving people's lives through vaccines, stemming racism, and making sure that our not only our parents, but that we can go outside and feel completely safe and not have to have this anxiety that we've had to adopt and learn, that's where we draw the line. And so I hope that for those of you who may not agree with me or Christina on everything that we've shared about today, that at least you'll agree with us on that. That what we're trying to do is to make sure that more of us can have a tomorrow, that more of our grandkids can see their grandparents at some point, and that we can get out of this together because even when we're all working towards the same thing with the same plan, it is so hard to beat this. And we're seeing it still today. And so, um, Christina, I want to really thank you for for jumping on, on the show. I know it's a very challenging topic to talk about. I know it is a uh, topic that I think for some, we've been talking about it for a year. I know we went from sort of prevention to vaccine, but we've been talking about COVID almost every day for over right. a year. And <laughs> I know many of you listening might be vaccinated already. I know many of you uh, might be thinking that this is over and that you can go back to normal life. Um, but I would urge you and I would encourage you, um, and I don't know when this episode will go out, hopefully in early May, um, you know, look up what's happening in India, look up what's happening in different parts of the world. Um, they are our community members as well. Many of the people that might be listening to this have direct family. Um, and so, you know, again, when we say lives and we say community, we mean the global community of, of all of us. And so, um, continue to stay safe and continue to, uh, minimize the unnecessary risk that you might be taking in from a health perspective, not only for you, but those around you. So um, we, we leave the show, every show, uh, with a sharing of thoughts and, and well wishes and encouragement in the form of our signature letter. Uh, the name of the show is Dear Aged Americans. Um, it is my letter to the community. It is my letter to my two kids eventually when they can listen to all of this. Um, mm -hmm. And so we'd, we'd love for you to add to the collection of letters that we have already. And so whether it is words of advice or encouragement or anything that you'd like to share with our uh, community. So, uh, Christina, I'll start the letter. And if you can help us finish out the show by completing the letter, dear Asian Americans. Sure. <sighs> so, dear Asian Americans. We're a lot more than Asian Americans. <laughs> we came here either on our own accord or through different pathways and segways. Either way, united, here we are. And at the time where we are facing challenges, ultimately at all levels within our workplace, 
within our healthcare system or even, you know, just going to the grocery store scared for potential hate crimes. I think that, yeah, as Asian Americans, we're here. And no matter how we came here, we're empowered. And I think it's important for us to uplift each other. There are obviously different ethnicities within the Asian American complex. But yeah, I mean, I think, dear Asian Americans, let's think outside of the box. Maybe we don't know everything. Maybe, you know, we are more than just Asian Americans. (laughs) And we could help fellow Asian Americans or otherwise. And, you know, it's not sexy, but be consistent, Asian Americans. (laughs) Be consistent with your message. And it's important to really research and stand behind your beliefs. Thank you. And again, we, we, we fully understand how difficult all of these conversations are. Mm-hmm. We're, we're tired physically um, for so many people within the healthcare system. Um, again, in, in so many of our families, they're, they're exhausted. Um, they're, they're going through so much. And, um, and so kudos and just undying just undying gratitude to everybody who's out there um, really selflessly doing all that you can so that we can have this conversation, that we can mm-hmm. be hopefully turning a page, not just here in the United States, but globally. Yeah. Um, and and if that, you're not, I also would want to point out, like, that's fine, too. <laughs> if you're exhausted, like, go rest. Like, I, I can't emphasize that enough. Like, I've talked to so many people where they're like, oh, you know, I'm not doing research or anything really to help contribute, but take care of yourself. That's that's one thing I really do also want to emphasize. (laughs) Rest. As it in the case of a, you know, keeping anything that requires great change. um, I know we've talked often in our community about how do we fix racism? How do we fix mistreatment? How do we fix inequities that are systemic in nature? We're not going to fix it overnight. We're not going to fix by having one conversation about it. It's going to take years, and there's actually a good chance that we're not going to finish that battle in our lifetime. And so rest up as you go. As we as we enter or as we are in the middle of Heritage Month, celebrate the hell out of your successes. Celebrate the hell out of your friends, your family. Uplift them because all the things that we have done, look at Christina. Look at all that she's achieved professionally and academically. Statistically, probably not what people would have bet. But you are here. Yes, because of your parents' sacrifices, but despite the systemic challenges and difficulties that society and culture have put in front of you to say that a Filipina woman cannot go have a degree in neuroscience, cannot have a master's degree in epidemiology. And here you are sharing with us your insights and your perspectives and your words of hope and courage. Because as you, as you started off with, you did not see yourself above you in the organizations and the classrooms that you wanted to achieve in. But you are now that person for not just Filipino women and girls, but all of us, all of our daughters. And so thank you for what you're doing. This has been a lot of fun. Um, We are going to put a lot of resources and links into the comments of the show notes. Um, As I mentioned earlier, one is the We Can Do This website from the Health and Human Services Department. Um, And there are so many other things. And I promise you what we share 
is going to be fact. It's going to be science and research-based. And so if you are curious and if you're looking for things to share with your friends and family, um, please do check those out. We wish you all the health and happiness in the world. Uh, and particularly, we wish you safety. And so, uh, Christina, final words before we say goodbye. I just want to thank you again, Jerry, and plenty of the listeners out there. Of course, feel free to let me know of any questions. And yeah, it just starts with a discussion and it goes from there. And whatever is within your comfort level and whatever, you know, you can commit to over a long period of time. So thank you again. Awesome. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Please be safe and we will see you next time. Want to thank Christina so much uh, for joining us on the show and sharing her journey of becoming an academic and being a healthcare per, uh, professional as she works tirelessly to bridge the healthcare gap that exists, particularly within our community. Again, uh, really excited to share that this month in May, we are partnering with McDonald's as a part of the We Are APA campaign to share seven amazing and unique Asian American stories. Head over to our Instagram at theasianamericans.com to learn more. Send us a DM, tag us in your photos, tag us in your posts as you celebrate APAM. Happy belated or happy again Mother's Day to all those folks who are celebrating. As we look forward to this week, as we reach the midpoint of APAM, uh, a lot of opportunity to reflect and to think about what this means for us. Uh, But most importantly, how we're going to take this unique moment in history where so many eyes and ears are on our community to make sure that we make this lasting and a permanent change in sharing our story. So, Again, thank you so much for joining us. If you have any questions or thoughts, you are always, uh, our inbox is open. Hello at DearAsianAmericans.com takes you straight into my personal inbox. I'll be sure to respond or you can DM us through the Instagram at DearAsianAmericans. Hope you come back. And in the meantime, please do go back and check out a few of our older episodes. We got more than 100 you can check out. Signing off on this episode of Dear Asian Americans. It's been an honor to be your host, Jerry Wan, and as always, be happy, be safe, be healthy.